Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you so much for joining us on BC Podcast. Here's a message to encourage your heart this week. Well, good morning. I am Pastor Mike. It's nice to be here with all of you this morning. I want to start off by thanking you and celebrating what we just saw on the screen. Uh, You participated last week in our trunk or treat. We had well over 100 volunteers. We had like over 80 cars, and we had well over 6,000 people come and be a part of the event possibly 7,000. We've never had an event that large. Uh, For 90 minutes, new people kept coming and piling into the line and going through the trunks and and meeting us. The whole place was filled. Out here, we had inflatables. Over here at the, the fire pit, we had marshmallows going. We had in here a movie playing. We had kids and families everywhere. We had 700 families register with us to win prizes, which means we can follow up with them and invite them to Christmas Eve services and different events that we do here at the church. So we made a huge difference in making impact and connections with our community. So I wanna celebrate that. I wanna thank you for being a part of that. That's a huge deal. So this morning, we're gonna continue in our United series. We're in Ephesians chapter four. And some of the things that have been sticking out is that Paul wants us to be a certain type of person to have unity and believe and to rally around certain things, which are our core beliefs. When it comes to character principles, we should be people who are humble and kind and patient and loving. Those are essentials for us to be unified and to maintain our unity. But he's also spent some time working through core beliefs, things that we just are called to believe no matter what, the kinds of things that you and I should be willing to die for the things that we rally around, the things that we unify around. So there's core beliefs, but then there's also preferences. And we haven't been talking about preferences. Preferences are things that don't fall into core, and we can have opinions about those things, we can have discussions about those things, but we're never, according to scripture, supposed to divide over those things. So this morning, our text is Ephesians 4, 5, and it simply says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Three core components of who we are. One Lord, one faith, and one baptism. And those will be our three points for the sermon today. The first point is one Lord. When Paul is referencing Lord here, he's talking about Jesus. Throughout the book of Ephesians, starting in chapter one, verse two, verse three, on through, he continually is referencing Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus. So here, this reference to Lord is a reference to Jesus in particular. He just spoke about the Holy Spirit and he's about to speak about the Father. So here is Jesus. Uh, and notice here, it just says, one Lord. He's being particular and distinct and that's intentional. There's one Lord. And for you and me and for Christians, this idea of one Lord, one faith, one baptism is the source of our hope. You know, we've put all our chips into that bucket. But just think about it from culture's perspective, from the world's perspective. They don't like those things. To say out loud, there's only one way and we know it and maybe you don't, that rubs the world and culture wrong. That's something we need to talk about today. Those words for us create hope, but for others create frustration, anger, and sometimes even backlash. So the world views Jesus as only one possible way up the mountain. If there's a mountain and you have God and salvation and heaven at the top, 
the world views Jesus as one way of multiple possible ways, not the only way. But for us as Christians, we believe that there's one Lord, one way. The world's point of view is if we say there's only one way, then we are coming across as a bit exclusive, unloving, intolerant, and maybe even arrogant. So how does the Christian come to the conclusion that there's only one way? Are we what the world says that we are? I would suggest it depends on the basis of our belief. Why have we come to that conclusion? How have we determined that that is true? Here's a clip from a movie. This is a way of seeing how you don't depend on a certain statement. Trade them for a package of sunshine and ravioli. Macaroni! If you want the thing you love... You did it! Congratulations! World's best cup of coffee. Great job, everybody. It's great to meet you. Hi. Come over here, boy. So I hope you recognize that movie. That's Elf. If you haven't watched that, you should watch that this winter, this Christmas. Um, he sees a sign on the outside of the, of the shop that says, World's Best Cup of Coffee. Now, they just bought it and they just put it up. Like, did they win an award? Was there like a study done? No, but he just sees it and he believes it. And he says out loud, congratulations, you've done it. Um, is that what we're doing? There's a statement that Jesus makes. So for us, there's a source for this one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And I would say this is the most solid source that can be found. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the one who says there's no other way. Jesus is saying only through me can you get to the Father. There's one way according to Jesus. Now, in every other circumstance, if we were to hear someone say those words, we would probably just assume they were crazy, delusional. But what does Jesus do? Jesus says those words and then lives a perfect, sinless life. Then he goes to the cross in our place, dies on that cross, and then what happens? He raises from the dead. So when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, there's no other path but through me, there's an empty tomb that says it is so. He knows he must be Lord, he must be God. Peter, who's an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus in Acts 4.12 says it this way, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Peter, who knows Jesus, he knows the empty tomb, he went into the empty tomb, says he's right. The empty tomb proclaims there is no other way. It's only Jesus. So our basis is Jesus, and our basis is the resurrection of Jesus. So in today's society, truth is believed to be fluid and personal. We used to believe as a culture that truth lived outside of us and we would agree or disagree with us, with it. But there's a point where a couple decades ago, we started to believe truth is actually inside of us and we can shape it and change it to what we want. And everybody else has to respect it. It's almost like truth is on a buffet line and you have your plate, you just kind of pick what you want to believe and everyone has to respect what's on your plate. 
That's kind of how we view truth nowadays. So it feels offensive to many with this type of thinking for Jesus to look at their plate and say, you put the wrong stuff on your plate. That's not actually true. Just because you want it to be true and you internally believe it's true, it's not actually true. And then Jesus points back to an empty tomb. He points to a cross. He points to a sinless life. Do you remember the conversation that Jesus had with the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane? So it comes to this whole one-way thing and the fact that for many, it almost feels offensive. For Jesus, it was no little thing to be the way to the Father. In the conversation he had in the Garden of Gethsemane before the crucifixion, he looks at the Father and says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Jesus knows what it's going to take for him to be the only way to the Father, and it's going to be no easy thing. That cup represents the cup of the Father's wrath, which will be poured on God the Son. He's saying, is there some other way? Can we make another path? And the Father in that moment, Jesus knows it. The answer is, this is the way. This is how we're going to do it. And Jesus proceeds to the cross we must recognize it was through incredible pain that Jesus became the only way to the Father. So when Jesus says, I am the only way, it is not a moment of arrogance. It's not a moment of exclusivity or intolerance. It's a moment of Jesus displaying the greatest act of love in the history of the entire world. That's what it is. It's a moment of incredible love, him humbling himself, as a servant to then die on a cross in your place and mine. So the world might say, you're being exclusive, you're being arrogant. And we're saying, Jesus loves you. And he did that for you. So there's a way, some way to the Father. That's the perspective from seeing it from Jesus's point of view. So when the world argues that there's multiple paths to God, Jesus and the Bible simply disagree we are taught there's only one path, and it's the person and work of Jesus that's the one path. And there's only one way up the path, and the only way up the path is faith. If there was another way, if there was another path, then why did Jesus die on the cross? If there was another way to get to God, then why did Jesus suffer the way that he did? Why did the Father pour all of his wrath onto Jesus if there was another way? If there was another way to heaven outside of Jesus, it makes the death of Jesus foolish. It makes God pouring his wrath out on the Son maniacal, horrible, in every way. There's only one way. And the cross and the empty grave bear that to be true. There's only one Savior, and he is our one path. One faith. One faith. So we've defined the path. The path is Jesus, and faith is the only way up the path through Jesus to God the Father, salvation, and heaven. So let's talk about what does faith mean, and then what does it look like? One faith. 
In Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is defined this way. It's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So faith here is forward-looking, and the object of our faith can't be seen or touched. But you're filled with assurance that it is certainly true. When it comes to saving faith, saving faith, that moment where you place your faith in Jesus and the Bible says he forgives you of your sins, saving faith, there's a couple elements to saving faith. Saving faith is more than just knowing facts. Saving faith isn't taking a multiple like choice test and getting a good grade on it. Even the enemy, Satan himself, knows that Jesus is the Son of God. He knows he rose from the dead. So there's more to it than just intellectual assent or understanding. There's a part where the heart kicks in. There's a movement of the heart, not just the head. In Romans 10, 9 through 10, it says this. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and then believe in your heart, so head, heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with the heart that the person believes, resulting in righteousness. Righteousness is right standing before God. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. So there's a head-based recognition and a heart-based response when it comes to faith. When it comes to faith, there's a head-based recognition of what Jesus says is actually true, but then there's a heart-based response, and I believe it. I'm going to hope in it. I'm going to trust in it. I can't see it. I can't touch it, but I have assurance that it's true. The heart also moves. So the mouth says, Jesus is Lord, and the heart says, and I know it's true. So saving faith is head, and saving faith is heart. And today, we're going to be doing baptisms. I'm so excited about bringing baptisms back into our main service. So we're going to be doing that today. At the end of the service, you're going to get to be a part of that. And they are going to express their testimonies. So their testimonies will be read to you. And in those testimonies, you'll see that they believe Jesus is Lord and their heart has been changed by faith in him. So faith is necessary for salvation. The Bible's very clear. When it says one faith, faith is necessary for salvation. But I want you to also know that faith has always been necessary for salvation. Always. Faith has always been necessary for salvation. It's always been one faith. Let's look at Abraham. In Romans 4, 2 and 3, it says this. If in fact... Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about. So the starting point of that verse is Abraham didn't get to heaven. He didn't have a relationship with God because he did good works. Sometimes we think the Old Testament is good works and the New Testament is faith. That's not what the Bible says. It says that he didn't do it by good works because if he did it by good works, he had something to boast about. If Abraham made this relationship with God by doing the right things and he could pat himself on the back, he achieved something. But it's not what it says. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it, the belief, was credited to him as righteousness. So Abraham had faith. Abraham believed. Okay, well, Jesus hasn't come yet. So Abraham's not placing his faith in the cross, what Jesus accomplished. He's not placing his faith in an empty tomb. What is the content 
of Abraham's faith? What is it that he's believing? So the Bible tells us, Romans 4, 21 through 22, it says that, it says that basically it's the promises and the covenants of the coming Messiah is what he places his faith in. In Romans 4, 21 and 22, it says, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he promised, this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. God looked at Abraham and said, through you, you're going to have a son and a lot of descendants. And through those descendants, there's one coming through whom all the nations will be blessed. It's a promise that he makes to Abraham that through one, all nations will be blessed is pointing to a coming Messiah, is pointing to Jesus who is yet to come. And it says, Abraham believed that it would come to pass. So the promises of God, the covenants of God are what Abraham believed in and that's what was credited to him as righteousness. These promises, catch this, this is interesting. These promises are called the gospel because these promises point to the coming of Jesus. Galatians 3.8, it says, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying all nations will be blessed in you. Before Jesus came, God started talking about the fact that he was coming. And that was the gospel being preached. So sometimes when we talk about the gospel, we think it's just Jesus came, died on the cross, and rose from the dead. And that is the core of the gospel. But before that happened, the gospel was he's coming and it's going to happen. So you see the gospel working through all of scripture not just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but through all of scripture, there's this pronouncement that he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And the Old Testament saints of old say, I believe, I trust, I'm looking forward to that day. I know it will come to pass. They're believing in the gospel. In Galatians 3.9, it says, so then those who are of faith, that's you and me, everyone in the room who has believed, so then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer, one faith. He's uniting you and me and Abraham together into that one faith. Abraham believed. And if you've believed, you're with Abraham, the believer. It's a beautiful picture of this one faith. Everyone who's in heaven or will be in heaven has believed. No one is in heaven because they worked their way there. They have faith in the gospel. And either that's the promise of the coming Jesus or it's faith in the Jesus who has come. All have believed. It's either faith in the coming Jesus or like you and I, faith in the Jesus who has come. But it's always been about faith. It's always been about Jesus. So here's a slide to try to make this um, as easy to understand as possible. So if you imagine the cross on a hill, the hill of Calvary, and we, after Jesus, look back on the cross and we believe in what Jesus did. We believe in the empty tomb. We believe he's Savior and Lord. It's like the blood of Jesus comes off the cross into the future and covers our sins. Covers our sins because we've believed in the Jesus who has come. But before Jesus came, 
There are those who are looking forward to his coming. And the work of Jesus also covers the sins of those who believed in his coming. The blood of Jesus, the work of Jesus, is the centerpiece for salvation for all who have ever believed. When Jesus died on that cross, he died for the sins of everyone who will ever be saved. Past, present, future. Abraham's sins were put on the cross with yours and mine. And when Abraham believed, it was by the work of Jesus that he would be saved. The sacrificial system, back in the Old Testament, it didn't save anyone from their sins. A dove or a cow dying doesn't actually create any remedy or forgiveness for sins, but it pointed to a one day where there was a Messiah who would cover their sins. The Old Testament law did not create a pathway of good works to be saved. Actually, what it did is it showed us how sinful we really are and how much more we need a savior who is yet to come for those Old Testament saints. It's always been faith. It's always been Jesus. We are together, we are one faith. So there is one faith and faith is the only way up the path. There's only one faith and faith is the only way up the path. So if we go back to this mountain idea, remember the mountain? God made the mountain. Mountain that God's on top of, where you receive salvation, God made the mountain. And Jesus is the one path on the mountain and faith is the only way up. This is God's world, that's how God designed it. That's how it functions and works. So, there is one faith, Abraham, you and I, everyone who ever believe, and this equates to one body, one church, one people of God. Have you ever viewed yourself that way? That you are a part of the people of God that includes Abraham and Moses and all who've ever believed? We don't have time for it, but if we went to Hebrews 11 and 12, there's this whole chapter talking about men and women of faith and when you get to chapter 12, it says, they were looking forward to the day when we would be united with them. It's one singular faith. It's one body of Christ. It's one capital C church. Bible Center is a church, but we're part of the capital C universal forever church. That's who we are. That's the context of how we function and think. So, if we are one piece of a larger, broader, forever church, how should we view other churches around us who also hold to the core? Churches who preach Jesus and love Jesus, they might do things differently. Their services might go a little differently, but they rally to the core like we do. How do we treat those churches? How do we view those churches? If we're a part of one faith, one body, one people, one universal church, then perhaps we should consider working together. Perhaps we, along with other churches who rally around the core, should partner together. Perhaps we should celebrate every other church in the area that preaches the gospel. Maybe it's not a competition. Maybe it's collaboration. Maybe it's a family moment where we realize that those are also brothers and sisters in Christ who worship and serve in different ways in different locations. Perhaps we love and support and we take care of each other as churches who rally around the core. What would it be like? 
what would it be like if like-minded gospel preaching churches across West Virginia began partnering together to share the gospel, to spiritually awaken and revive a state that is broken and hurting? What would it be like if we started thinking statewide? We started grabbing hands and locking arms around the core, around unity, that lives would be changed, that a state would be awakened spiritually. What if God's increase, increasing our unity so that we can actually also unite with other churches to help fulfill the Great Commission? It's not the Great Competition. It's the Great Commission. And we all do it together. I think it's time that we start dreaming again. Dreaming about what God could do here. Dreaming about what God could do for all those across the state who are going every day without hope and without God. No one church can meet all the needs of a city, a community, a state, or even a neighborhood. So what if different churches who love the same Jesus started working together, partnering together, figuring out together how to see the gospel go into neighborhoods, communities, cities, here and across the state. What if that started to happen? What if God started to revitalize this valley, this state, with his gospel? It's not gonna happen with competition. It'll happen with cooperation, collaboration, association, a rallying together around the core. And those character qualities, humility, kindness, love, patience, those have to be there too, between us and us with other churches. If we're gonna see this thing really do what God wants it to do, that is changing a city, changing a valley, changing a state. We are one body based on one faith. And this is a reference to all who have ever believed and all who will ever believe. This mission, this mission always includes us as a church. We never lose focus on Bible Center. The mission always includes us, but the mission is never only us. Do you catch that? When it comes to God and God's plan for the world and for this country and for this state and for this valley and for this city, the mission always includes us but it's never, ever only us. It's time to dream again. One baptism. So those who believe in Jesus our Lord and place their faith in him are called to be baptized. But before we discuss baptism, I want you to realize that there's a crucial step that takes place. Before anyone gets in those waters, there's something that has to have happened in their life. And Romans talks about what has to happen. In Romans 10, 13 through 15, it says this, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Those are the folks who will be baptized, those who have called on the name of the Lord. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? It is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Everyone today who's going to be baptized <clears throat> heard the gospel. Someone took the time to share the gospel with them. 
They had to hear it and receive it so they could believe it. Someone took the time. There were beautiful feet in their lives who brought good news of good things. We, you and I, we are the bringers of this good news. Your feet are the beautiful feet. So when we experience and celebrate baptisms, it should remind us of all the folks in our life that we still have to talk to, to spend time with. God has called us as sent ones. Jesus looked at his disciples and said this, as the Father has sent me, I now send you. As the Father sent me, I now send you. He's talking to every disciple. Everyone who believes is a sent one. All of us are the bringers of good news. You are salt and light in a dying world. You honestly have the words of life to speak to people who are dying in darkness. You and I can be those beautiful feet that this world so desperately needs. So as we celebrate baptisms, I just want you to ask the question, I want me to ask the question, is this the week where you need to have that conversation with that friend, that family member? Is this the week where you set up that time to go get coffee? Is this the week where you open up your home to your neighbors, you invite them over and you make them some food and start to build a relationship? When it comes to the bringers of good news, there's actions and there's words. We're called to love them with the love we've received, but we're also called to talk to them about the one that we know and love. So for you, you might be better at actions, you might be better at words, but God's called us to both, so we work on both. What's your next step this week? To love people with the love of Jesus and to talk to people with the words of Jesus. That's one of these steps with one baptism. How will they believe if they have not heard? So baptism is connected to our one Lord and to our one faith. It is the outward sign of an inward commitment to faith in Jesus. Baptism does not save. It's not as though someone goes into the water not knowing Jesus or not saved or not forgiven and then comes out forgiven. They are already forgiven. It's an outward sign of an inward already change. It's considered the first step in obedience. Jesus calls us to believe and to be baptized. So getting baptized is a step of obedience for the Christian. And the Bible gives us freedom in who does the baptizing. It could be a pastor baptizing. It could be a dad baptizing. It could be a mom baptizing. It could be a friend baptizing. Anyone can baptize. We're called to baptize those who believe, all who believe. But I want us to know this. For some, baptism is celebrated by a person's family and friends. Like it's celebrated. What a great thing. My friend is getting baptized. But for others, baptism is no little thing. It might mean rejection from your family, rejection from your culture, rejection from your friends. When I was in Mexico, me and the team that I was with, we were introduced by one of our students to a family that now lived outside of the city of Guadalajara. And that family had basically been pushed out of the city. When they claimed Christ and got baptized, they were basically excommunicated from their family, where they were worshiping and serving, as well as the place where they worked. They no longer could make money. So they moved out of town and started a little pizza shop. 
incredible people. But when they got baptized, it was a big thing. It was risk. It was judgment. It created difficulty around the world. Being discovered as a Christian is a death sentence in North Korea. If you aren't killed instantly, you'll be taken to a labor camp as a political criminal. In Afghanistan, if it is discovered that a family member has been converted, they, their clan or their tribe has to save its honor by disowning the believer or even killing them. It's impossible to publicly admit your Christian faith in Somalia. If any Somali is suspected of having converted to Christianity, they're in great danger. Members of their family, clan, or community will harass, intimidate, or even kill them. It is no little thing to be publicly united to Jesus. So today, when we do baptisms, we baptize here at Bible Center as a family, which means that when Pastor Matt or Pastor Steve goes to baptize someone, they're going to say, we baptize. And when that happens, you are gonna stick your hand in the air with me and everyone else, and we're gonna say this together. We baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then we baptize. Because we're a family. It represents our oneness in Christ. So this is a moment we all share in at the end of the service. And also, at Bible Center, we worship and we celebrate while we're baptizing. We'll have music going, we'll be excited. This is a big deal. It's a huge moment for not just them, but for all of us. And I want you to think this way. How fun would it be if next time we do a baptism service is one of your friends in the tank? It's your neighbor, your family member, your coworker who's making a decision for an inward change. You and I are sent ones. You and I have the words of life. You and I can point our families and friends to the one Lord to one faith and one to baptism. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. But how will they know if no one ever tells them? Let's pray. Father, I pray even now that there would be faces and names that come into our mind and our heart of people we should spend some time with this week. I pray that you give us opportunities to love through action those who don't know you. I pray that you give us the ability to love with words and through words, sharing your gospel to those who don't know you who are in our life. Father, I pray for us as a church that you would use us as a church to begin to be one of hopefully many sparks across the state that begin to change and grow this state spiritually. Create a spiritual awakening across this state. Revive us, your people, and may many come to know you as Lord and Savior. We can't manufacture that. We can't do that on our own, but Lord... Would, would you choose to do it? And would you choose to use us? Help us to dream again. We love you. In Christ's name, amen. For more information, visit us at BibleCenterChurch.com and give us a follow on all platforms at Bible Center.